1: Yep, yeah, that's it. Okay.
2: That's are we recording already? Yes, <laughs> we are. But oh, shoot. No, no. It's like right, you've nailed it. I mean, that is the podcast. <laughs> so I think I, I'm so need sorry to, to sort of
1: in any way make it seem
2: less just, sophisticated than it is. You need to lift out the word just.
1: Okay, so what we do is we have an amazing so in, funny
2: conversation we have a profane and profound conversation right okay. Louise mentioned yes uh, and then we introduce the day's guest but i tell you what is discombobulating me is we're is doing it early aren't we we're doing it before the programme goes out
1: I do, I do appreciate the the um, adjustments you've made so that I can be on the radio this weekend on the podcast well
2: I've just been informed that you're going to leave the show before it finishes today because you've got a Trained to catch up. To go and do a previous engagement. I'm going to go give awards out to
1: teachers. Well, that's Which lovely. is a nice thing yeah. to do, isn't it? And thank you very much for being so accommodating. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> I, I couldn't cancel them; that's been booked for six months. When did you? When
2: did you phone? You know, like Friday. or I think something. last Wednesday we nailed you down. <laughs> but that just makes me laugh because uh, I mean, the only thing that is really, really solid about a radio program is the time. Is what time it starts? I'm aware of that. And what time yeah, it finishes? And in 31 years of broadcasting, are you I've, saying I'm a deep? I have never. <laughs>
1: heard of anyone just go it was my people I'll just go at 4.45 no <laughs> 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 so what happened okay to back up I'm not a deep I'm, I, no, I can't I say I'm, I mean it's, it's they're not going to believe me now are they but but i really wanted to be on the show and i just couldn't get out of it and i literally i needed to be in a tardis to get to the award ceremony on time and i think i didn't do the negotiating but whoever did it did it really because yeah. as you say you i mean in my many years of broadcasting never has that been no. allowed so
2: it's so thank you for it it would be tra- the equivalent of us Time's all watching bbc breakfast and to see you looking at a watch going oh, to go now sainsbury's opens in 10 minutes <laughs> Bye, Dan. Do you need anything? <laughs> oh, that's some chimichurri paste. So, uh, yeah, that's going to happen later on this afternoon. I thought you wouldn't mention it for you. Oh, I'm so going to mention it. Yeah, I <laughs> no, really I know. It. as soon as I stand Bye. up. Say See ya. <laughs> you Timer. Going... Oh, did you say that you're going to Winchester? Yes. Oh, that's you're, so sweet. Well, I mean, you know Winchester well, yeah. don't you? So yeah. the Great Hall. Well, that is a huge venue. Is it? I'm feeling really nervous now Well, now. I think it's got a lot of, uh, it has a lot of atmosphere because it is very connected to King Alfred. The whole of Winchester oh, fantastic. is very connected to King Alfred. Right. Uh, so there's a very big
1: statue outside. I mean, my main concern at this point is how close it is to the station and how fast
2: they have to run to it. Well, the good thing about Winchester is it's downhill from the station. Oh, OK, good. <laughs> But then you'll, you'll hurt a little bit. Well, you won't, will you? You'll just jog up <laughs> afterwards. Um, I hope it goes well, actually. What a Thanks. lovely thing to do. Uh, should we just say congratulations to all teachers? Don't you think? Especially because of what they've been through the last few years as
1: well. I think it's been really tough. And I'm sure everybody listening has a teacher that made a difference to their lives. Mine was Mrs Robinson, who was a maths teacher. And I loved her. And she was brilliant. And we did terrible things in class. But she was brilliant. What about you?
2: I had an amazing classics teacher Did called you? Mrs. Rankin. Right. Uh, who actually, one of our lovely listeners on the podcast uh, who also had her at school informed me that she died Aww. quite recently. Yeah. And we were both very sad about that. She was amazing because she just treated us like we were adults yeah i mean properly she didn't put on that thing of i'm going to treat you like an adult she treated us like adults and we just loved her i don't know how mrs robinson put
1: up with us Can honestly you she, like, tell us one of the it wasn't things. me yeah i mean it really wasn't me i wouldn't i wouldn't do this to anybody i think someone i know someone shut her in the cupboard it's terrible isn't it i mean truly truly terrible it's quite bad isn't it <laughs> How long for? I don't know. An eye watering. I mean, if I was locked up in a cupboard, one one second is too long. So I've got so I I mean it's just terrible. But how the people who did it weren't didn't have really serious punishments, I don't know. But that was back in the day, wasn't it? I'm not in any I mean it was horrific. So she was amazing. So Mrs. Robinson, if you are listening, and I did meet her years ago back in the in the playground. She I was with my children and she did come up to me, she recognized me. And and clearly I wasn't one of the locker uppers. Um, um, And she was sweet. She was lovely. So, Mrs. Robinson, I thank you. I know I wasn't very good at maths, but thank you for being Mm. brilliant.
2: Yeah, that is lovely. Were you a very bright kind of all-star student? No. Were you? You probably were. No. No, Weren't you? No. (laughs) I was a
1: late... I was... A late developer, so put it that way. Were you?
2: So yeah. but, so I mean you've done incredibly well. You've got right, right in everything for you. To the top of your uh, chosen profession in a very, very competitive industry as well. So that's interesting. I would have I would have had you down for a very diligent, hard working <gasps> student. Oh no. No. You got me all wrong. Really? <laughs> I was so badly behaved, even at university.
1: And then I had a moment when my life changed and I decided that this was not the course. If if I wanted to do the things I wanted to do, I needed to knuckle down. I went to, um, I went to, I studied Spanish at St. Andrews and I got amazing um, opportunity to go live and work in Argentina. And I was literally the bottom of the university Spanish department. I mean, everybody else got like, you know. I mean, I was like, and they tried to get rid of me several times, rightly so. And then I went to Argentina, and I pretty much learned Spanish from scratch. fell completely in love with the language. Felt completely in love with hard work, and just came back a a changed person. And then it kept coming up to me, going what happened? Like I'd had some sort of conversion. And I guess I had, I just decided that I wanted to get on and do
2: exciting stuff. And I needed to work hard to do so. That's interesting. So was some of that as well, just being uh, completely removed from people's expectation of you in a foreign country at quite a young age?
1: Yeah. And really hard because I had I was the bottom of the Spanish department, and even if I'd been the top, the Spanish and Argentina would have been challenging. So I was dropped in a country where I basically didn't understand hardly a word, working in that language, living in that language, and there is nothing like that to make you sit up and listen and learn. And I learned mostly by I, I had to learn because I couldn't I couldn't eat if I couldn't go shopping and didn't understand I couldn't eat, um, and I learned mostly by watching. Soap opera.
2: <laughs> what was the best soap
1: opera? It was, you called, it was called. It was about a nun. Was it a nun? <laughs> it was a nun. It was a Mexican soap opera. Anyway, so th- she she changed my life. The Mexican nun. Oh, yeah.
2: Well, I'd, I mean, I'd love so, to. So,
1: all you late developers out there, don't
2: panic. It's never too late. Uh yes I think that's always good to say at this time of year isn't it as well Yeah, when, when there is exams. exams I mean I didn't you know I'm not saying I did badly exams but I no, certainly could have Andrew, I could so have done quite
1: better well. I could have done better yeah if I'd actually ha- had some application so um so yeah it's not too late is it and no. I think we all it took me a long time to how I mean did you always know you wanted to do this well really weirdly from quite a young age yes I think I did, I did too but I didn't think about you know, to to do what I wanted to do, I needed to change
2: my attitude Mm. until quite late. Yeah, I didn't start really working, working, working hard until I, uh, you know, got a job... I wasn't very good at studying, actually, at the discipline of studying. Right. I only got two A levels. Louise. Okay, But I did always just love the radio, so I worked really hard mm. at doing that. And do you know what, sometimes um, I mean, like really properly hard, extra shifts. <laughs> at one point I was working at Radio Humberside during the week, and I would come back to London to do two free shifts at the radio station here in London that yeah. I wanted to work at, and then I'd get up at four in the morning drive oh my back gosh. to Humberside. All of that kind of stuff. But I don't remember um, ever feeling tired or resentful. You know, I just had a proper... I Mission. love what I'm doing yeah. and I want to make it work. So and I hope that... Uh, I think it's worked for you.
0: Oh, yes, no. I
2: Well, I hope it has worked too. But, yeah. you know, I kind of... I think everybody does hopefully have a spurt at when it suits them because you, you know, you've got to choose you know, when you're going to put your foot on the accelerator and then you've really got to be yeah committed so my
1: my moment and I you know at university despite being a terrible student I was interested I did you know wrote for the student newspaper all that stuff that you should do and then my big moment was um, sitting in again back to Chile again this time um, another job as working as a translator by you know by then I worked really hard and I could speak nearly bilingual Spanish and I was being interviewed in a studio very like this one by some amazing you know a journalist in the middle deepest darkest Patagonia and I just looked and I was like oh now I get it that's the job that's the job I wanted and like you i worked all hours because people assume you just arrive on the BBC breakfast sofa like it's a gift that is not a gift you know I worked like you all hours of the day the morning the night and you know there are worse jobs to do and I think where we're lucky and this I can just hope my children have this if you know what you want to do, that is the
2: best gift. It's ever. a blessing, isn't it? Isn't it? How lucky Absolute are we? Absolute blessing, yeah. And, and also to go because know then you don't care you, because you're tired never and all it. The rest of it. Yeah. yeah, you know, watching some of the young ones now mm. having to duck and dive and change all of the time because it's so hard to get a foot in the door. Mm-hmm. I really feel for them because yes, if you've got that kind of, this is the only thing I want to do. Uh, and then know, it doesn't matter. You cut your suit. I never, yeah. I never get that idiom right. You cut your cloth to fit your suit, or your suit to fit your cloth. Which way round is it? I can't cut either. Okay, <laughs> so right. I don't know. K tragedia. That's the only thing I can yeah. say in Spanish. You
1: come, in, you're a classicist. I know lots of things in. <laughs> you said what did you say in Spanish? I didn't understand. Well, it's probably not, not
2: proper Spanish. K tragedia. Oh, what a tragedy. Yes, Muy bien. Muy bien. Thank you. <laughs> I tried to learn Spanish when I went to live in New York in my early 30s, and it was very bad.
1: Right. Okay. Anyway, um, so we, we digress beautifully.
2: We did, yes. Uh, we'll rein it back in, uh, because we're going to introduce the interview with Wendy Mitchell in a couple of moments, uh, but we have had some fantastic emails. she you just want to do the one about the free rabbit? Oh, the rabbit. So
1: the rabbits made the podcast yesterday, didn't they? Yeah. So the rabbit, I have a rabbit. It's called Bumble. She must be about nine, but we're slightly unclear. So she. I'm going to read this email, because this is exactly... The the trajectory of my rabbit's life. Uh, This is from Penny. Dear and Louise, loved hearing Louise's pets. Uh, For many years I had rabbits who would go free range onto my verge in my suburban street in Fremantle. Um, That was not really a choice. They started in a hutch, brackets like my rabbit, and a run which seemed cruel. Totally agree. So then I gave them the run of the back garden Exactly what I did. Then the whole garden and finally when it became impossible to contain them they'd just come and go as they liked. The only hazard that I would be woken up by cheery passers-by knocking on my door at an earthly house of the morning... Brackets, Australian get up early, are telling me my rabbits seem to have escaped. I'd have to say, get up. That's like exactly what we do. Say thank you, pretend to be concerned, and shoo them back in. This went on for many years. And then somebody says they started photographing them and posting them on the Facebook. And one of the neighbors would say, you know, the rabbits seemed, you know, the rabbits are fine. And then she'd get into trouble. I haven't got into trouble, touch yet, for being an irresponsible pet owner. What if they were caught by a dog? Well, hopefully. I mean, that's worried me now. Thank you so much, Penny. I am worried that she's caught by a dog. And then this other lady got really upset because she was getting anxiety because she knew the rabbits were on the loose. Oh. So it got really complicated. Um, anyway, the bunnies both had a long, exciting lives and eventually died peacefully at home. And honestly, it's the sweetest thing you see. in my house. You see this little bunny hopping about.
2: And we call her and she comes back at night. It's adorable. Do you let her... Free, free roam in the house? No. Because of the bunny balls? I mean, people
1: do, you know, people,
2: because of the what? Bunny balls.
1: (laughs) The dogs (laughs) dogs would clear that up. Would they? Yeah, they would. I know it's unfortunate, isn't it? Okay. But they are Labradors. Um, No, because, um, and people do have house rabbits. I've never had a house rabbit, but people love their house rabbits. They're really sweet. Um, Because I would be worried that she would eat the electricity wires. Yeah. But that's the only reason why.
2: I'd be more worried about the pee and the poo.
1: Would you? Yes. They're very
2: they but they pee in
1: one corner, rabbits. Mm. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Anyway, thank you so much. Um she also
2: had two alpacas, because I know you want
1: alpacas, don't you? I do you? want
2: alpacas. Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, her parents had alpacas, Eddie and Zach, who brought them great joy and kept the grass down for you. So there
2: you go. Lovely. I cannot wait. Uh, this one comes from Emma who says hello there. Uh, I'm Louisa's swimming friend, Emma. You know Emma? I do know
1: Emma. Okay. Hello, Emma. She is a massive fan of the podcast. Oh, she good. knew. I said I couldn't come swimming this week. And she goes, I know that because you can be on Times <laughs> Radio because you heard it on the podcast. That's quite spooky, isn't it? Yeah. And they, I got, do you get adopted by people sometimes? I mean, I adopt rabbits, not rabbits, but ponies and stuff. But I, the, Emma and her other friend, Emma, adopted me while I was swimming. They just basically made friends with me and now we've
2: been on lots of epic swims together oh that's lovely yeah yes brilliant yeah. but that's interesting that you you call that adoption yes not, not making friends there was a power play that uh, wasn't there well done emma uh, emma says just listening to yesterday's podcast and i'm flabbergasted to find out that louise has too many shetland ponies i can't believe emma doesn't How know can this? you have a friend who doesn't know that you've got two shetland ponies literally <laughs> Kate, Would
1: that well, be the
2: first thing you'd say? Well, not. I mean, within six minutes of you being in the office, we all knew you had two I don't, Shetland I don't know. And
1: I, my favourite thing about last night was sending you epic, oh, endless... I did eventually f- stop sending you Shetland pony pictures because I thought you'd had enough. They're
2: going to go up on Instagram later on today, aren't they? Are Which they? one's your favourite, Holly oh, or Muffin? Wonderful. Well, the one that's got the blonde mane. Oh, that's, that's that Holly. Holly. Yeah, that's yes. the girl. Yeah, she's yeah. gorgeous. Because it does look like she's wearing a comedy wig. She does, actually. doesn't she?
1: And I don't cut their manes or do anything. They just, they're just, just going... Getting longer
2: and longer at this point. Yeah. But Do have a look at our Instagram. It's just Jane and Fee, uh, and we will pop up all of those pictures. Uh, I had to give Nancy a special extra treat last night because you felt, you've been unfaithful. Very much so. And because you know the kids were cooing over <laughs> no. Shetland ponies and you know I can't have anybody to see my Nancy. Not quite right. No. But I do understand it when you say that you absolutely love them, because mm. I absolutely love my animals. I mean, properly. You do, properly don't you? Love them. Yeah. Uh right. Wendy Mitchell came in to see us. Uh she is a remarkable, remarkable woman. So if you haven't come across her work yet, uh, I would advise you to look it all up, actually. She was uh, diagnosed with young onset dementia when she was in her 50s. She had a full time job in the NHS. She was a single mum to two daughters. And she decided that she wanted to share all of her symptoms and all of the things that she subsequently went through. She started a blog, which was very successful. And then she has written two books with the help of the journalist Anna Wharton as well. And she's just told the world some really interesting and really necessary things about what happens to your mind and to your life when the fog of dementia moves in. So she came in to talk to us yesterday, and I first asked her to describe to me what it's really like when she doesn't have one of her
3: good days. When it's not a good day, I feel like I'm handcuffed by both arms to dementia. And it decides what I do that day. I'm I always like to be the 51% in control. And when I'm having a bad day, I usually have probably down to 20%. And so it's, I describe it like a fog descending on the brain. And it's very hard to work out the reality of the day. And so I either give in and hide under the duvet or I. Venture out and walk in my village if I'm at home because being outside seems to dilute the dementia. Oh, that's that's the how I like to see it. And if I've got any chance of coming out of this fog, it will be outside.
2: And on those days when the fog descends, can you also constantly remind yourself? That it will pass?
3: As long as I can say to myself, tomorrow might be better, then I know it will pass. It's when a time comes that that thought doesn't enter my head that I know, well, that other people will know dementia has got me.
2: So this is a huge part of what lies behind your books, isn't Mm. it? Explaining exactly that Mm. to people, that when you're Wendy, can no longer recognise Wendy, Yes, this is a time that you don't want to I, still be...
3: Yeah, here. I don't want to be that Wendy. And many people have said to me, but, but you might be happy. And I want to shout at them and say, I don't care whether I'm happy. I don't want to be totally reliant on other people, which is what it, it will come to. I don't want other people to decide whether I can go for a walk, when I eat, when I drink, when I go to bed. I want to have the autonomy that I have now. And I, I, I truly believe that in this country we have so little choice over our death. And it's the one thing that's 100% guaranteed to the world's population, yet we give it so little airplay, give it so little value.
2: And you make such a good point in the book that throughout all of our lives, we are really encouraged to try and make good choices about our health. You know, the message from the medical profession, from the NHS, from government, is to constantly look for how to make yourself better and do things involving choices. Yep. But when it comes to control over our
3: death, we, have we no. don't have that conversation, do we? No. The, the, the NHS over the years has done a magnificent job of finding cures, but they're never going to find a cure for death. And so it's always bugged me that we've it's as though it, be, it happens to someone else it doesn't happen to to you I, I remember when we were writing the book how it was common it was normal for people pre NHS to die at home we accepted that that would happen but once the NHS came into existence it was almost as if we relinquished responsibility for dying. It, it didn't happen to us anymore. It was someone else's problem. And so we, we've almost grown into a society that denies death, instead of valuing what people believe in as their own good death.
2: Mm. You also collate some very interesting statistics uh, about how we think about death and how other people have talked about death. Uh, In a 2021 report, Public Attitudes to Death and Dying, uh, which presumably was government funded at the time, 70% of people felt comfortable discussing the subject of death, but only 14% actually had. I know,
3: isn't that ridiculous? It's that, just as with my two previous books, there was this stigma against dementia. And people said to me that they had my books on their bookshelf for years, two years, one person said. And when she had the courage to open it, suddenly she thought, what on earth have I been waiting for? And I unraveled the mysteries of dementia for her. Well, I want people to trust me that one final time. and and allow me to unravel this mystery that is going to happen to all of us. People underestimate this value of the power of talking. We, we, we seem to ignore talking about death because of that fear of it, the unknown. But it actually is such a, a powerful enabler to live if you discuss death. it's almost as if you've unburdened your head with all these thoughts of what ifs and are now able to live your life as you want it knowing that others will take care of you in the way that you want to in the future and for your death so i don't understand the people call them difficult conversations but they're not difficult as the words are quite simple. They're they're uncomfortable. And I would say to everybody, have these conversations while you're well, not when you're needing to have them. Because when you're needing to have them, there's this inevitability about them. Mm. Whereas if you're well, they're almost hypothetical and able to cope with them.
2: So let's uh, put some facts into this then. What should be in that conversation around mm. death? If we start by talking about the medical and physical side mm. of death, what do you think people well, need to know?
3: Everybody should have a lasting power of attorney, no matter what their age, what their, whether they have any serious illness. Everybody can have the basic lasting power of attorney To simply sign your health needs over to someone else who knows you if you get run over by a bus and are in a coma. It also takes care of your finances. It takes care of so much hurt and aggravation for those that are left. And in the
2: lasting power of attorney, Mm. what can you stipulate? Does it talk about Mm. your wish not to be resuscitated.
3: In the Lasting Power of Attorney, all you need to do is hand over your wishes to someone else. You don't need to write the detail in the Lasting Power of Attorney. This is what makes this society so complicated, is that different areas have different forms, and the form that I use to express my wishes is called a respect form not every area has respect forms yet but that states that I do not want to be resuscitated that states all the nitty-gritty of health care but you can have all the forms in the world if you haven't had the conversation with the people that you're gonna hand your life over to they're pointless they're worthless
2: this is such an important point as well isn't it Wendy, yeah. that, that that you need to tell people uh, not only what you want, but where to find oh, yes. the legal bits and pieces that will enable them to do and yep. to follow through your wishes. Yep. So you've got the lasting power of attorney,
3: Yeah,
2: you've got the respect, respect form. For How would somebody in a moment of emergency though mm know what to do would that always Hmm. be a loophole if a paramedic is called for something how would they know
3: if a paramedic is called to my house I've got a sticker on my my front door that tells them to look in the fridge and in the fridge normally people have their medication but I've got my respect form that says don't give me any medication (laughs) but that only applies if I have an accident in my county because the paramedics are linked up to my respect form if i crossed over my county into the next one and i had a accident they'd be pumping me and doing all the things i don't want to simply because nothing's connected in this country nothing is simple i always carry mine with me so that when they're leafing through everything to find out who you are, they'll find my respect for them. But it shouldn't be like that.
2: And certainly, now we live in a digital age yeah, exactly. why, with data why, available, it does seem extraordinary because so many people must find themselves in incredibly difficult situations with relatives absolutely. because of all of these gaps.
3: And that's why it's not only the paperwork but the conversations but so many paramedics are grateful to people that have do not resuscitate like like i've got my band that says do not resuscitate because the paramedic knows what damage can be done in resuscitation
0: Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
2: You're listening to an interview with Wendy Mitchell, and in her book she speaks to people who express their wish for death not to be viewed as the ultimate sadness. I asked her how she's encouraged the people close to her to think about her death.
3: Oh, goodness, uh, we're ever having conversations. My girls roll their eyes when I say, can we have a family meeting? Because <laughs> they know it's going to be something random. I, I've planned, well, actually, I thought I planned my funeral for them so they didn't have to worry about that. Because I didn't want a service, I didn't want um, anything like that. I wanted to be cremated, but straight to cremation and then have a celebration event. But because we talked, my oldest daughter said, well, but that's the part of the grieving process for me. I want you to have a cremation that we can all come to. So through talking, that made us compromise on what we knew would happen because we discussed it. It wasn't a big deal. I thought I was doing the best for them. but In fact, I was taking away part of the grieving process. Mm.
2: I think as well, one of the things that uh, really made me think in your book was some descriptions of actually how humans die. Mm. And we see Mm. a very sanitized fictional version Mm. of death, don't we? which really bears very little relation to how people die. Um, People have been generous in sharing their experiences with you, haven't they? So I wonder if you could share some with us.
3: We, we We heard some very traumatic stories from people, and I can't remember people's names, sadly, but there was one gentleman whose father had died alone in the garage with the pipe and the exhaust well this
2: is paul blomfeld oh oh, that was the man
3: the mp the mp and how sad that he had to do that just because his father didn't want to experience the end stages of cancer i mean that that is just tragic that people have to die alone and their family have to cope with the finding the person you know that that shouldn't be allowed to happen but also the the family of the scottish lady she died a dreadful death with cancer that her children knew she would never want but there was no nothing they could do to prevent all the trauma and the Stress that was happening before their eyes, and again, their mum didn't want that. Their mum wanted to die before that stage, but of course, we there is no choice that we're open to. So, so
2: that was Sarah's mother, wasn't it? Who had I, esophageal I, cancer? Oh, yes, yes And it was—it's a, was. a very, very it's visceral a very description, yep, yeah, of how she died. So that takes us to a discussion, doesn't it, about assisted dying and about having control over the end of your life. And you're very clear, I know, Wendy, that assisted dying is something that does have a vulnerable aspect to it in terms of law and there are problems associated with us. But if you were a lawmaker, what would be the very best way that you think Hmm. a law be drawn up
3: well in this country we're so far behind so many other countries that we haven't even got to the starting point you know we'd we we do not allow people with less than six months to live to choose whether they use assisted dying so we have to have that starting point before before society will accept that there's people like me with dementia that can choose assisted dying. But it happens in other countries. In, um, you know, in Holland they have the review every six months. Are you still sure you want that to happen, etc.? And we seem so third world almost in this country on the subject of dying. And it's because the, I found out that the opponents of it believe that. A, the vulnerable will be shoehorned into assisted dying, but that happens nowadays. You know, there are people in care homes who are automatically put on the DNR register without any conversation having had. You know, that's wrong. That happens. And oh dear, I've forgotten what no, question you at all. asked me. Sorry.
2: No, so the big question, I suppose, yeah. Wendy, is just. If assisted dying was allowed in this country, what difference would it be making to you now in your current life?
3: I would would live for far longer because I knew I had that get-out clause. It's like in America, there's so many people eligible for the magic potion, I think they call it, and they have that magic potion in their hands but they choose not to use it because they have that choice. They, we're not given any choice. We're not allowed that autonomy to decide what a good death looks like for us. But we, the, the other debate is around palliative care. They're saying, well, money should be pen, spent on palliative care to make that perfect well yes of course it should but it shouldn't be a either or you know I respect other people's choices who would never choose a sister dying but I'm just asking them to respect my choice
2: mm. so when somebody says to you as Baroness Finlay does oh yes, when she you did. talk to her yeah um, and she sits in the House of Lords. She was a doctor and she opposes assisted dying. Yeah. When she says, well Wendy, maybe a treatment will become available uh, you know, during the next six months mm. that would enable you to live a longer healthier life. So assisted dying would have taken that away from you.
3: But I'll be dead. I wouldn't know that. <laughs> I'll have chosen when I want. Not when I believe something might come along. It, it's, it's like um, people focus on these magic moments of joy. I think I quote some, uh, it was probably Baroness Finley again, um, who, who told me about the man in the care home that played the piano and brought everyone joy for, I don't know, an hour a day. But, you know, I said to her, but what about the other 23 hours? You know, would he have chosen to have other people be be dependent on other people? Would he have chosen to be there? Would he have chosen to um, be reliant on everybody? And if if he would have chosen, then that's wonderful. I'm so pleased for him, but it's not a choice I want to make. I don't want to have an hour of magic moments each day.
2: Let's talk about just one magic moment that is coming up for you. Wow! When you came in today, you noticed the view first thing. We all do, and you are actually going to abseil down one of these buildings behind us. Certainly, am my very
3: last wacky challenge, as I call them, for charity is in September, and. I'm going to free fall abseil not just abseil but free fall so i just f- fling myself off the top of the cheese grater building i don't know what its proper name is i'm sure it must have a proper name let's stick with the cheese grater yeah. whatever it's proper named, <laughs> it doesn't matter and i just can't wait to step off that top of that building and just fly like a bird
2: and is it just too uh, much of a cliche to say that there's a tiny chink of fearlessness that your dementia has
3: given you. Absolutely, it's given me a huge, big bucket full of fearlessness.
2: But that would add to the argument that we as a society should encourage people like you to stay with us as long as you can.
3: Oh, but it comes back down to choice. You notice it comes back down to that thought that (laughs) take an animal and you desperately want to keep your dog that's been with you for 15 years, but it's you that wants to keep the dog. You know, the dog is suffering and you know that the kindest thing is to let them go, let them die. Why can't we have that same... Thought for humans.
2: Wendy Mitchell, and that book is called One Last Thing. She has written two other books as well. So if you're interested in the subject, and the subject is life, basically, isn't it? Uh, Then do look up her work, because she's just remarkable, actually. I really, uh, really, really enjoy just being in her company for half an hour, actually. I think her honesty... Uh, is really touching uh, just not to try and turn everything back to things that would you know be of interest to you Louise but is mm. one of the reasons why you do so much exercise and the kind of high intensity endurance exercise to make yourself feel kind of invincible
1: um, it's not to make,
2: well there's lots of things
1: it's because I enjoy it and yeah. I know that some points I don't enjoy it I think I get a lot of the benefits are immeasurable, both kind of psychologically and physically as well. And it sounds really silly, but I'm stronger think, literally every day. Like I'm, you've seen the silly bag I'm carrying around. I'm strong and I can carry that because I go into the gym. So that makes me stronger physically. But mentally, the resilience I've learned through endurance sport is utterly irreplaceable and immeasurable in that, I, I, you know, I, you know, you call yourself. It sounds really pretentious, doesn't it, to call myself an endurance athlete? And be really clear here. I can run or whatever it is for a long time. I'm not fast, but it means that when times are tough, I can dig in in a way that perhaps other people might not. I'm not saying everybody can't do that, but it makes me really resilient. And there's lots of points when I'm, for example, really nervous. I've got stuff that I can go back. I call it my like backpack of superpowers. I can think about something I've done. Like yesterday, I was nervous yesterday. And I thought, do you know what, it's fine. I've jumped off a ferry in the dark. I can probably talk to Fee on the radio.
2: So it gives me lots of different gifts mm. in different places. Does it, do you think, change your attitude to ageing? And to the vulnerability of chance, because y- yes. Wendy's whole life yeah. is, in a sense, been devastated uh, through no fault of her own. So I don't know how fit she was, yeah. you know, before yeah. she had her diagnosis. It wouldn't have made very much difference, uh, you know, what she had done previously. Mm. She has got a terrible illness, you know, which can strike anybody. Chance,
1: yeah. I mean, I think what <sighs> it's difficult, isn't it? But from my point of view, I just think until that thing's happens to you and you don't know when it's gonna happen, do you? You don't know we don't know what's gonna to happen tomorrow. If I can live my kind of best life before that, then hopefully it will make a difference. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So and it and, and it sounds really silly, but sort of looking forward, you know, I want to live a long life. I think we all probably do, and, and a healthy life. And I do know that what I the investment I put in now with strength, et cetera, will probably mean that when I'm 80, I can still run a little bit or whatever it is. So I do sort of think about this sort of
2: future investment, but you can't chance, you know, you never know when that's going to happen. Yep. I think also what what Wendy's current book is about, um, is about dying and about having some kind of say in the way that you Mm. die. And for her, with a really severe uh, terminal condition, having some kind of control over when you die... And I wonder what will happen in our generation uh, with societal views towards assisted dying, yeah, because we have been so encouraged and told that we can be in control of so many things, yeah, I wonder, you know, I think whether we will accept the status quo at the moment, which is that we have no real control or say in how our life ends.
1: I wish I could remember um the name of the person that I'm about to talk about. But I did a conference a few years ago, which was a medical conference. And there was a lady who talked about death in that conference. And I will have to look it up. But was it Dr. Catherine Mannix? It was. And she talked, doesn't she, about how unaccustomed to death we are, how removed we are, and how actually, you know, it is a process that we will all go through. And perhaps we should be much more educated about it to help us in those moments when our loved ones are dying or we're in a position where we know things are going to end um and she she was just
2: brilliant she was brilliant at that yeah she is remarkable yeah. i think it's just such a change in conversation actually and and, and another one of wendy's points and it's, it's one of Catherine manix's main mm. points as well is just to do exactly this to actually talk about well death.
1: i just that's that's why wendy's amazing yeah because is. we don't know those journeys do we and i'm sure we all are you know and see things changing for people around us and to hear somebody's story so that you can understand perhaps when that's happening to a loved one or yourself is really powerful and
2: also really brave and admirable yeah isn't it totally i think she's just um she's thanks wendy yeah and she's so funny as well and so she's doing this incredible thing she's abseiling down the cheese grater the, bit, the great big, we can see it from here, can't what, we? What, that
1: thing there? Yeah, straight, yes. no, I can see it there. Yes. That thing. She's absolutely down that. I mean, she's a in legend. In September. <gasps> yep.
2: Really? Yep. That's what you got to do. Yeah. Uh, so, Wendy's book is called uh, One Last Thing. Uh, do grab a copy if you can. The book that we're reading for our book club is called Freshwater for Flowers and it's by Valerie Perrin, P-E-R-R-I-N. Uh, we might take some more pictures of that and pop them up on Insta in case I'm speaking too fast or quite possibly my french accent is a bit odd uh, and louise will be back tomorrow and uh, i've just started reading your book fearless so we will talk about that and i think that concludes i'm doing shuffle can I you do you, you shuffle because you're really good, that's, that's you're really good. okay here she comes <laughs>
1: right that's it goodbye everybody see you tomorrow beautiful
2: Money bank.
1: I know, ladies lady, don't lady listener. Kind of, sorry.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.